Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Tony Presenti joining us now, market strategist and portfolio manager at PIMCO. Tony, this cycle is moving so quickly. That's the story, the epicenter of your outlook with you and the team right now. Can you just walk us through how you're thinking about the world around us at the moment? Well, we, we when we talk, like to talk about the yield curve and the yield curve movement uh, speaks to this idea of a fast moving cycle. It does seem like the economic cycle is moving at warp speed. Think about it. We're probably at mid cycle, uh, meaning look at the unemployment rate, 4.8%. What is a, a, a late cycle uh, condition? Of course, an unemployment rate that's lower and that lower rate could be achieved full employment next year. So that's a fast moving cycle. In fact, the Federal Reserve is projecting that the unemployment rate will be in the mid threes by the end of next year. So for investors, it's important to be on your toes. It's a simple way of saying it's important to be uh, active with uh, portfolio management, to be thinking more about security selection, region, regional selections, et cetera, uh, et cetera. Um, but, and it is a fast-moving right. cycle. One final note, the, the yield curve, again, it's, it has flattened recently, and that's something that happens later in the cycle because the Federal Reserve is raising the short-term rate, which pushes up its yield well, relative to the long-term Tony, rate, flattening the curve. Tony, that's where I want to go. Two's 10 spread this morning, 118 basis points. Tony, where is the two-year yield that matters to you? We're at 0.44%. Just, just in your mind, Tony, where's the two-year yield a tip point or a critical point for Crescenzi? Well, the, the two-year relative to other yields matters a lot. I mean, it's just that the two-year will tell us about the two-year window. And we know that the market's looking at shorter-term interest rates and forward interest rates like euro-dollar futures is projecting that the Federal Reserve will increase its policy rate sometime next year, perhaps as early as June. Uh, the market's penning in several interest rate hikes. But the other, this, so there's two extraordinary things about the two-year to 10-year spread. One is the fact that the spread started to flatten earlier in the cycle than we have seen since the 1980s. And then in the last three cycles, the last three recessions, the spread between the two and the 10-year note was uh, as wide as 300 basis points. In other words, the market's were patient about the idea of, uh, of Federal Reserve interest rate hikes. It thought that interest rate hikes were somewhere out in the distant horizon. And so yeah. long-term yields had stayed high. Uh, but now, the, so this, this is, uh, the peak this time was 150. So it was half the level of the previous cycles was to cut to the to chase. The second part of the, the extraordinary part about the yield curve 2 cents spread is that the 10-year yield is projected to be low. And on Bloomberg, a function for you Bloomberg users, FWCM, oh, it shows you. forward interest rates. And you see uh, the market is saying that it, there's a benign uh, story uh, to evolve, un unfold over time, that interest rates probably won't get above 2.5%, well, even as far out in these forwards as I look at the table, calling it 10 years plus. Well, but Tony, just to sort of tie this all together, then what is the message from the yield curve? Is it that the market market that the economy can't necessarily handle too much tightening from central banks? Or is it just that the margin is going to naturally be narrower because of this uh, ceiling on longer term yields? Lisa, those are probably uh, the conclusions that most would draw from it now. But perhaps forward interest rates are wrong. Perhaps the market, the consensus, and that's 
uh, embedded in these forward rates is is wrong and thinking that the the 2010s uh, will be uh, repeated in the 2020s. But the 2010s is probably the wrong analog for the 2020s. There's a a lot going on in PIMCO's secular outlook. We talk about, speak to uh, transformations, for example, becoming more digital, more inclusive, more green. Those are the three major transformations we see. All of those things could, we're not saying they will, uh, result in faster growth. And simply doing the math, if, if economic growth is 4% as the Fed projects next year and PIMCO projects as well, then looking at the next five years, even if growth is 2% in the subsequent four, we'll still have a, a rate that's about two and a half. So that would be a lot better than the 2010s simply just by that math. And so it's possible the growth is faster and these, these forwards are wrong and, and therefore um, rent rates will go higher. We're not suggesting that rates will go materially higher. In fact, we would say uh, we may return to certain uh, old normal conditions, but with new neutral characteristics, which is to say that, yes, Lisa, yeah. uh, that the Federal Reserve can't raise its interest rate too much because of debt loads and certain other factors. Hey, Tony, we're out of time. Haven't even got the time to plug your book. Got to let you go. Tony Crescenti thanks, there. Thanks, thanks, John. Hey, Tony, Lisa. thank you. Good to catch up, as always. Right now, this is an incredibly important interview for 2022 and indeed 2025. U.S. on fire. And again, the bears have been vanquished here. No question about that. But a recurring theme that we have on surveillance is look to Asia and look to the true growth there. Gabriela Santos with J.P. Morgan joins us. They're global market strategist. Gabriela, I love how your essay dovetails into what I'm seeing in the new Foreign Affairs magazine, which is China, and you define a new China. What is the new China? That's right, Tom. And, and in a lot of our conversations with investors, China keeps coming up time and time and again as really an area of growth in portfolios. And I think it's much more about a conversation about Chinese markets more so than than China's economy going forward. I see the new China really being about one that stresses the quality over the quantity of growth, um, that also prioritizes other objectives in addition to growth alone, such as reducing inequality and energy transition, a development of capital markets, and also a China that has new areas of emphasis. So this year has been all about the areas of pressure in the new China, but there are also areas of emphasis, like domestic consumption, technological infrastructure, and the energy transition. And it's interesting, our investors still believe China's investable, right. and are looking at this uh, point in time as an opportunity to build that allocation to China over time. Is there somewhat capitalism or at least their experiment, is it endogenous more so to China or does it redound out across the Pacific Rim and all of Asia? I think we do have to remember China has a very particular political and economic system, and we see that at play this year. When China does decide to pivot and to do reforms and regulations, it does so extremely quickly, and that is a feature of China. It does lead to these moments of volatility. We see these 30-plus percentage corrections every three years or so in China. It's a feature of investing there. It does come with higher volatility, about double the volatility uh, for Chinese equities versus the S&P 500. But you do get other benefits. You get uh, the potential for higher revenue growth and these new sectors of emphasis. 
and you get extremely good diversification benefits. It's working against you this year. China's down 11%, while EMX China is up 10%, but it can also work in your favor like it did last year. So net-net, we still find it helps to boost risk-adjusted returns, and that's very unique to the China onshore market. Gabrielle, are you concerned at all about the political ramifications in the United States toward investing in China? The idea here that there is a changed relationship between the two nations and that if companies or even investors uh, move into China, they could be susceptible to risk at home in terms of regulation. So we, we do see in surveys in the U.S., as well as actually in a lot of countries around the world, this increase in unfavorable opinions uh, towards China. Um, and I think that's honestly a feature of, of the next century, this competition between China and the rest of the world. What we talk to our investors about is that whatever you may think or, or not about China and its political system, you can't ignore it. Uh, you can't ignore it in terms of the size of its economy, the size of its markets with the second largest equity and bond markets. Um, and you also can't ignore it in terms of the risk adjusted benefits it can provide portfolios. So maybe an investor decides that investing in China is not for them. But I think as a fiduciary, investors need to prove that they've thought out uh, the benefits that they're leaving on the table and that they've well documented the reasons why. Meanwhile, Gabriela, the question of what happens in China directly bleeds into the supply chain disruptions that we continue to see. How are you sort of gauging the activity level there with when we'll start to see some of the inflationary pressures from supply chain disruptions perhaps start to abate a little bit more? So we've clearly seen a deceleration in China in the third quarter, 4.9% GDP down from 7.9. That deceleration can continue a bit longer in the fourth quarter. Part of it is related to the pandemic. China's the only country that continues with this zero tolerance approach to COVID. So localized restrictions are still going on in China and that can affect uh, some production and some consumption of services. But more than that, I think we're learning that this deceleration in China is a feature, not a bug of the new China. It is about lower quantity growth, much more about quality. So structurally, we'll continue to see a decline in things like property, infrastructure, low-end manufacturing, energy-intensive industry. The floor on Chinese growth is much, much lower, and I think that's something that investors need to internalize and adjust lower their expectations, mm -hmm. and then we can move on and focus on the opportunities. Gabriel Santos, thank you so much with J.P. Morgan this morning. Let's go down and look at Tito's Vodka. We can do that in Texas. We do that with Regina Mayer joining us right now, Global Head of Energy at KPMG and a true force at Rice University and the Baker Center. What are you, open question. I, I rarely do this, Regina, but you're so good, I'm going to ask it. What is your single point of study on hydrocarbons in America? What's the mystery for you into 2022? Yeah, so let me try to boil it down because I think what we're suffering from is a systematic and prolonged underinvestment in these long cycle projects. That is what it takes to bring oil and gas to the market. We see demand continuing to grow. The IEA said it'll be 96 million yep. barrels per day. Uh, and, and others are saying it'll be pre-pandemic levels. We have tightening supply because countries are starting to worry about energy security and countries right. that can are buying cargoes almost at any cost. So that's driving up 
All of that against the backdrop of an expectation of a cold winter, hotter summers. So we have crude oil up 60% over the last six months, natural gas up 131% over the last six months. And I think it gets worse before it gets better. That's what I'm thinking about for 2022, Tom. Well said. The, the, the reality here is for the last 20 years on hydrocarbons, technology has saved us. Do you and the engineers at Rice and KPMG, do you assume there is new and improving technology or is this as good as it gets as we produce oil? I think technology will always continue to surprise us. And I never doubt the ingenuity of the industry and in particular the shale players. But what we've had is investors driving different kinds of behavior. And so your public shale players are sticking to the narrative of we're going to delever the balance sheet. We're going to return strong dividends to our investor base. And OPEC Plus, which can release more supply, is enjoying this 80 plus dollar rally to rebuild their government coffers because they've been suffering for budget deficits over the last 18 months during the pandemic. So, yes, technology can definitely play a role, but not in this short squeeze where we're in today. Regina, this is definitely a global story, but it's also a very U.S. story, in particular Cushing, Oklahoma. I was taking a look at a bunch of the stories about how much of a supply shortage there is there, how much the inventories have gotten depleted, and how that is distorting markets dramatically. How much is that driving a lot of the rally that we're seeing, frankly, globally, but driven from the WTI crude? Well, I think WTI definitely is playing a key role because everyone's watching what the shale players are doing. But I think there's a, a Cushing story in all the global markets. You know, we saw the gas prices spike 10 times, 10x uh, in the UK, not, not too long ago. There's again an energy security story there where 40% of natural gas supplies into the European continent come from Russia. So when we look at tight supply choke points, like Cushing, like some of the uh, systems in the North Sea, uh, even what OPEC Plus is gonna do, those little bubbles create the overall geopolitical story and drive a global commodity price that's really extraordinarily healthy right now. What does $100 barrel of oil do, say at the end of this year, early next year, as many people are predicting? I think that's where we start to see probably pretty significant demand destruction and probably where we start to see more increases in U.S. activity, which can be a swing producer, and we can return to being a swing producer. We're already seeing rig counts that are up almost uh, double from a year ago. And while the public shale players are sticking to the investor narrative, Lisa, I'm seeing a lot more private shale activity uh, and, and more oil and gas development and production coming in the Permian and elsewhere in the U.S. How do you respond to market strategists to Wall Street types with a vector to $90 or even $100 a barrel. How do you respond to that as an academic? Well, I, I think, I mean, it's a it's a real economic challenge, right? I mean, that's what the underlying value of the, of the commodity is today. And I think that's where we have to look at what's going to happen in Glasgow and COP26. How do we accelerate the energy transition? How do we address energy security? And how do we ensure that the market forces keep energy affordable and reliable and a planet that's consuming more and more, you know, every day as we continue to grow. Within oil here, the overlay has already been gas. I remember the, the, the Exxon transaction. Everybody had to get into some form of net gas and the rest of it as well. After Anadarko, after Occidental Petroleum, what's going to be the synergy that we're going to see 
in American oil? What's the the next combination that just has to be done? Well, I, I think you've seen those combinations already, Tom. So I, I think there's a lot of consolidation around shale assets in the U.S., which will help because scale, as they say, shale means scale, and that'll help from a cost perspective. So even if oil ultimately comes back down to below 40, we can still be profitable with those larger players. And you see the international oil companies pivoting more to have a more diversified portfolio in the energy transition. Some are betting more on carbon capture and storage. Others are betting more on hydrogen batteries. Others are betting more on renewables. So I think you'll start to see a bifurcation of the traditional energy company strategy with sort of the new energy company strategy. And that will help balance the power needs that the planet has today, you know, as we pivot into the energy transition. Glasgow and COP26 will be very interesting to see. Regina, before we let you go, there's been a dilemma for a lot of investors that want to move toward more ESG type strategies that want to seem like the good guys investing in greener energy. And they have missed out on a rally that's been dramatic. And a lot of analysts have come on this show and said, if you invest in oil companies, you'll do great. How do you sort of see that developing in terms of investors, both getting the returns, but also being able to sleep at night with how they're putting their money to work? The sector took a beating last year that I didn't think was necessarily warranted. So I think there's definite upside. And for those of us that stayed in our oil and gas uh, equities, we're doing really well in our portfolios. But I think what I would say is investors need to have a balance and don't count out the energy industry. We have to be a key part of driving into a lower carbon climate. If we're not at the forefront of driving that, then I don't think that we are able to achieve a two degree C, a 1.5 degree C scenario. So I encourage investors to look at the bigger picture. Don't demonize one side versus the other because we need an all of the above strategy to get to the climate goal objectives that we have together. So don't just look for what sounds green in the short term. Look at a balanced portfolio because fossil fuels and hydrocarbons have to be a core part of the underlying part of the portfolio for for a substantial period of time. And we will reduce the carbon footprint of those hydrocarbons. The industry is committed to that. Regina, I've really enjoyed listening to you. Thanks for being with us. Regina Mayer there of KPMG. Tony Presenti joining us now, market strategist and portfolio manager at PIMCO. Tony, this cycle is moving so quickly. That's the story, the epicentre of your outlook with you and the team right now. Can you just walk us through how you're thinking about the world around us at the moment? Well, we, we when we talk, like to talk about the yield curve and the yield curve movement uh, speaks this idea of a fast moving cycle. It does seem like the economic cycle is moving at warp speed. Think about it. We're probably at mid cycle, uh, meaning look at the unemployment rate, 4.8%. <clears throat> what is a, a, a late cycle uh, condition? Of course, a, an unemployment rate that's lower and that lower rate could be achieved uh, full employment next year. So that's a fast moving cycle. In fact, the Federal Reserve is projecting that the unemployment rate will be in the mid threes by the end of next year. So for investors, it's important to be on your toes. It's a simple way of saying it's important to be uh, active with uh, portfolio management, to be thinking more about security selection, region, regional selections, et cetera, uh, et cetera. Um, but, and it is a fast-moving right. cycle. One final note, that the yield curve, again, it's 
it has flattened recently, and that's something that happens later in the cycle because the Federal Reserve is raising the short-term rate, which pushes up its yield well, relative to the long-term rate, flattening the Tony, term. that's where I want to go. Two's 10 spread this morning, 118 basis points. Tony, where is the two-year yield that matters to you? We're at 0.44%. Just, just in your mind, Tony, where's the two-year yield a tip point or a critical point for Chris Enzi? Well, the, the two-year relative to other yields matters a lot. I mean, it's just that the two-year will tell us about the two-year window. And we know that the market's looking at shorter-term interest rates and forward interest rates like euro-dollar futures is projecting that the Federal Reserve will increase its policy rate sometime next year, perhaps as early as June. The market's penning in several interest rate hikes. But the other, there's two extraordinary things about the two-year to 10-year spread. One is the fact that the spread started to flatten earlier in the cycle than we have seen since the 1980s. And then in the last three cycles, the last three recessions, the spread between the two and the 10-year note was as wide as 300 basis points. In other words, the market's were patient about the idea of, uh, of Federal Reserve interest rate hikes. It thought that interest rate hikes were somewhere out in the distant horizon. And so yeah. long-term yields had stayed high. Uh, but now, the, so this this is, uh, the peak this time was 150. So it was half the level of the previous cycles is to cut to the to chase. The second part of the, the extraordinary part about the yield curve 2 cents spread is that the 10-year yield is projected to be low. And on Bloomberg, a function for you Bloomberg users, FWCM, oh, it shows you. forward interest rates. And you see uh, the market is saying that it, there's a benign uh, story uh, to evolve, un unfold over time, that interest rates probably won't get above 2.5%, well, even as far out in these forwards as I look at the table, calling it 10 years plus. Well, but Tony, just to sort of tie this all together, then what is the message from the yield curve? Is it that the market Market, that the economy can't necessarily handle too much tightening from central banks? Or is it just that the margin is going to naturally be narrower because of this uh, ceiling on longer-term yields? Lisa, those are probably uh, the conclusions that most would draw from it now. But perhaps forward interest rates are wrong. Perhaps the market, the consensus, and that's uh, in, in embedded in these forward rates, is, is wrong in thinking that the, the 2010s uh, it will be uh, repeated in the 2020s. But the 2010s is probably the wrong analog for the 2020s. There's a, a lot going on. In PIMCO's secular outlook, we talk about, speak to uh, transformations, for example, becoming more digital, more inclusive, more green. Those are the three major transformations we see. All of those things could, we're not saying they will, uh, result in faster growth. And simply doing the math, if, if economic growth is 4% as the Fed projects next year and PIMCO projects as well, then looking at the next five years, even if growth is 2% in the subsequent four, we'll still have a, a rate that's about two and a half. So that would be a lot better than the 2010s simply just by that math. And so it's possible the growth is faster and these, these forwards are wrong and, and therefore um, rent rates will go higher. We're not suggesting that rates will go materially higher. In fact, we would say uh, we may return to certain uh, old normal conditions, but with new neutral characteristics, which is to say that Yes, Lisa, yeah. uh, that the Federal Reserve can't raise its interest rate too much because of debt loads and certain other factors. Hey, Tony, we're out of time. Haven't even got the time to plug your book. Got to let you go. Tony Crescenti thanks, there. Thanks, thanks, Hey, Tony, thank you. Good to catch up, as always. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m., 
for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.